Welcome to another episode of the Sports Mecca Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Abramo. As always, I'm joined by my partner, Sam Hengeli. Today, we have the opportunity to speak with Nate Bucati. Nate is the co-host of the Border Patrol on Sports Radio 810 WHB. He's also the lead commentator for Sporting Kansas City and has worked within the Kansas City sports landscape for nearly two decades. With that said, Nate, thanks for coming on. We appreciate the time today. Yeah, absolutely, guys. Thanks for having me. Yeah, for sure. This podcast will be really involving a lot of different topics. You know, I'll have my set of questions. Sam will have his. But, you know, to start, Nate, you know, both Sam and I are curious just to start off for the viewers that are listening, maybe for the first time, we try to get a little bit, a little bit more just to get to know you personally. You, know, you grew up, you know, in Wyandotte County in Kansas City, Kansas. What was really your earliest memory, you know, of sports and following the local Kansas City teams? Yeah, so I, I kind of grew up in a lot of places. Um, I definitely consider KCK home. That's the first place I ever remember living. My, my parents had a little house on or off of 51st and Leavenworth Road in KCK. So the, the first real sports memory that I have actually, and, and I'll show you guys this, so you can see these uh, plastic replica batting helmets mm-hmm. that are hanging on the wall here. And uh, like this is in my basement. You can see I've got them hanging up like all behind the TVs and everything. So you, uh, you can see that orange one over there. That's a Houston Astros helmet. That was the first uh, re- replica batting helmet I ever got. When I was about five years old, my dad uh, came home one day and he was really excited to take me to uh, Indian Springs Shopping Mall in KCK at the time, which doesn't exist anymore. Um, but back in that time, it was a pretty vibrant shopping mall. And uh, he didn't tell me what, what he was taking me there for, but he said he had a big surprise. And when we got there, they had a, a display up at the J.C. Penney of, uh, it was like a rack with, with these kind of replica batting helmets. And they had one from every team. And my dad was like super excited about it. He said, pick out whichever one you want. And I'm going to buy you one, your first batting helmet. And these are those cheap plastic ones. You know, I, I don't know if you guys are old enough to remember. They used to sell these at Royals games. They have a little plastic band on the inside. You could tighten. I picked that Houston Astros one because I was a kid. And I thought, you know, the bright orange color was awesome. And that was probably about 1981 or so. And uh, my dad was like, are you sure? Like out of all these helmets, that's the one you want? And I said, yeah, so I got it. And uh, my dad and I would play wiffle ball in the backyard all the time. And I would always wear it. And, and from that point on, anytime we went to a Royals game as a kid, my mom had a deal with my sister and me where instead of buying us cotton candies and malts and all that stuff, she'd give us each a budget of $5 and we could spend however we wanted, which back in the eighties went a lot further than it would go today. But um, those, those batting helmets cost $4 and 25 cents, you know, at the, in the concourse and the little gift shops. And so I would take my five bucks and I could get a batting helmet and a bag of peanuts. And my sister would be putting down frosty malts and, you know, uh, every kind of treat you could imagine, cotton candy, everything. And I, I would just get the bag of peanuts. I wouldn't even have anything to drink, but I got a batting helmet almost every time I went. And, and, and I've kept them all these years and I've got them, as you can see, hanging in my basement now because they, they have a pretty fond childhood memory. So that's probably my first real sports fandom type memory. That's awesome. Yeah, that's awesome, man. I, I'll tell you one thing, though. You can't get anything for under $5 at the Royals. At no. Stadium. No. <laughs> uh-uh. 
<laughs> you probably can't even get a bag of peanuts for five bucks anymore. No, yeah, it's it's not it's not good. Um, but that's when you realize how old you are when you start telling stories. Of, like I remember my dad talking about buying a Coke for a nickel, you know, when he was a kid. <laughs> it's funny you mentioned the helmet that you wear across your hat your head because I remember having a plastic black helmet and they had like the blue brim. The Royals like in like the 2004, 2005, 2006 used to wear like the black and they had like the sleeveless jerseys. I wasn't a big fan of those, but yeah, you know, that was the first memory I had of going to games at Kauffman Stadium. And they always have those replica helmets, as you mentioned. But would you say baseball? I know you know you're doing currently you're with Sporting KC as the lead commentator. Was baseball like your first love? Was that the first sport that you really became a huge fan of? Or was it soccer? You know, it's I don't think I can answer which sport was my favorite first, because this was the routine. Um, when my dad, when I was a little kid, my dad, when he would come home from work every day, he would change clothes and we would go in the backyard and play ball. And he would let me pick whatever sport I wanted, but it had to be in season. Um, I remember that specifically, like you have these little, you know, certain memories. And I remember like, if, if I, if this time of year, if he came home and I said I wanted to play baseball, he'd say it's not baseball season. You know, I can play basketball or football right now, but not baseball. And and that was the way my dad was. the The only hobby that he taught me was sports. He didn't. We didn't work on cars together. He didn't know how to fix anything in the house. We didn't hunt. We didn't do anything. We didn't cook. Like we played ball. That was it. And my dad was one of these guys that he loved every sport he liked whatever sport was in season. And so I liked them all. Honestly, I, I didn't become, I didn't realize that soccer was by far my favorite sport until 2006. I kind of came in and out of soccer and, and that could be a long story if we wanted to do it every point in my life until that point in the world cup in 2006, just kind of hit me, man, this is my favorite sport hands down. And I love it. And I probably know the least about it because uh, growing up in KCK, there, there was not much soccer. I, I played two years of high school soccer and our coach was some guy they paid to come and he like was reading out of a textbook. You know, he didn't know anything about soccer and he was the one coaching us. So most of my soccer knowledge has come as an adult. Um, so yeah, growing up, I, I liked everything. My favorite sport was whatever was in season, honestly. Well, you know, speaking of, of high school, you went to the great Bishop Ward High School uh, in Kansas City, graduated in 1994. You know, when you were approaching that time when you were graduating high school, you were thinking about going on to that next step. To the interest of going into sports broadcasting and journalism and trying to get to the point where you are right now, did that interest you at that point? Or, you know, what led you to having that interest of being the person you are today? Yeah, so I, I knew I wanted to be a sports broadcaster since I was in sixth grade. And I can tell you like the moment that I've decided that's what I wanted to be. If, if you're interested, it, it, it um, my parents divorced in uh, the mid eighties and my mom moved my sister and me to her hometown where she had grown up, which is a small town in Southern Kansas called Arkansas city. Ark city is what everybody calls it. It's about, it's right on the Oklahoma border. It's about 45 minutes South of Wichita. So when I was in fifth and sixth grade, that's where I went to school and during the school year, every other weekend, we would come up to Kansas City to visit my dad. And what we, we called it the Divorce Express, 
my mom or my grandma would drive us up to Emporia, Kansas, and my dad would come down and meet us in Emporia. We'd meet at the Vista Burger there, and they would kind of swap kids, swap us out, and then we'd drive up to Kansas City and spend the weekend there and then drive back home on Sunday. And then during the summertime, it would be vice versa. We'd live with my dad in Kansas City and drive down to Arc City for the weekends. You guys are probably too young to remember these days, but back then, this was in the 80s, we didn't even have CD players in our cars. You know, like you had you had the radio and whatever you could pick up when you're driving in the Flint Hills. And then you had you had to sit there and talk to your parents the whole time. And, you know, when you're a sixth grader, you're not really dying to sit there and talk to your parents for three hours in a car. Um, and my dad and I would always listen to ball games. And I remember it was a Sunday. We were driving back to Kansas City and we were listening to a ball game. And um, he, he just just said, hey, wh- what do you want to be when you grow up? And I, I said something like, well, I I don't know. I maybe a point guard or a shortstop, you know, and he started laughing a little bit. And he said, well, you might want to come up with a backup plan. And I said, well, what's that supposed to mean? You know? And he said, well, are you the best player on your team right now? Well, no, but I'm, I'm one of the better players on the team. He said, well, yeah, the best player on your team will probably get to play high school. And then the best player on your high school team might get to go to college. And then the best player on that team might make it to the pros. So like, it's, it's a really long shot. So you just, you know, you might want to think about some other things. And I was really mad at the time. I was like, man, I'm just sitting here in this car, minding my own business. And then my dad comes along and crushes my dreams. And I wouldn't even, you know, I I didn't even want to have this conversation. But then I started kind of thinking about it as I sat in the car and pouted. And I started, "Ah, that makes, that makes some sense. I mean, I'm, I'm definitely not the best player on my team and I'm definitely one of the smallest guys. And I don't know, maybe, maybe I should just kind of set my sights on trying to play high school sports. And, uh, as we listened to the game, I, I started thinking about the announcers. I said, well, what, you know, what about these guys? And he said, what guys? And I said, well, these guys on the radio that are describing the game right now, you know, he said, well, the play-by-play guys. I said, yeah. He said, well, I don't see any reason you couldn't do that, you know? And so the rest of the car ride, we kind of hatched out, you know, what steps you would probably have to take to becoming a sportscaster. And I never really looked back. Um, The other part of it I could tell you is that same summer, I saw my first ever really scary movie. My parent, my mom was like really serious about not letting us watch inappropriate movies for our age. And I had gone to a, to see the movie Creep Show 2, which was a campy old, you know, scary movie. And it's, it scared the heck out of me. And I had nightmares for like a month straight and I couldn't sleep at night. And my mom wouldn't let me listen to the radio. So I would, I started sneaking a transistor radio under my pillow and I would listen to Denny Matthews and Fred White do the Royals games. And it was like two friendly old guys telling me a harmless story that calmed me down and, and made me feel like, you know, everything was all right. And so I really loved those guys. I mean, it was like having a bedtime story being read to you every night by these really, really cool announcers. And um, they kind of became my heroes. You know, they, I want to be one of those guys. I wanted to be one of the guys that said things during your favorite sporting moments that, uh, that you remembered, you know, I'm still wa- wanting to be that, I guess, but that, that's kind of where it came from. Your role now, you're working for Sports Radio A10. You've been at that position since 2003. You know, talk a little bit about that journey, that path to, to lead you to that spot where that you were in now. You know, how many previous stops, you know, working at radio stations did you have before you got yeah. where you were? And then was when you really started to do this, was was the goal to get to work at 810 was was the goal to work in Kansas City or was it, you know, to work somewhere else? Yeah, I mean, 
my biggest goal, I kind of tried to set my goals incrementally. Like my first goal was just to get paid to broadcast. And then once I accomplished that, it was like, if I can get that done, then, you know, get, get paid to broadcast sports and then get paid to broadcast sports full time. I, I always, though, I, I wanted to be a play-by-play guy more than anything. You know, talk radio wasn't really a thing when I was growing up. They didn't have 24-hour sports talk radio. So that was, those guys were never really my heroes. And I, I don't know, I just, I always like the play-by-play guys, the storytellers, more than the opinion guys personally. But I didn't want to limit myself. I just wanted to work in sports and, and get paid to talk about sports. So I went to Kansas University. I, I worked at the campus radio station there for you know, three years and w- went to journalism school. When I was a sophomore, junior, I took a job in uh, Ottawa, Kansas at KOFO Radio. That was my first paid gig. <laughs> Got about six bucks an hour to DJ country music and, and, you know, do the news and stuff like that. And in the summer times, I sold radio advertising for them. And then I got to do the high school baseball games in Ottawa. I got some internships at KMBZ Radio in Kansas City, which at the time was the only sports talk station. They they did news until two o'clock in the afternoon, and then they did sports from two o'clock through the evening, and they had the Royals and, and KU basketball. I interned there. When I got out of college, I got a job in, in Moberly, Missouri, which is a town of about 15,000 people, about a half an hour north of Columbia. I worked for about $15,000 a year, and there I, I DJed country music. I hosted the Trading Post, which is a call. It was like the small town AM radio version of Craigslist where people would call in and sell stuff, you know. I would uh, do the news shift. I would, uh, and then and then I I would do the high school regional game of the week and drive to whatever small town in Missouri had a big rivalry game that weekend and do the play by play for the game. And then I moved back to Kansas City after a year there, and I got a job at a radio station called Twelve Fifty The Game, which was a Intercom was a big company that that owns Six Ten Sports now, and they own Nine Eighty KMBZ back then, and they were they were starting to dip their toe into twenty four hour sports talk. 1510, uh, which is now 810, had come on board and was starting to really make some some waves in the market. That was right at the start where people really didn't take sports talk radio very seriously at that time. And and so Entercom started 1250 The Game was what it was called. And it only lasted for about a year on the air. It's a really weak signal. We had like four guys working for the whole whole station and uh, never got any ratings, did pretty poorly. But I was able to uh, work my way over to KMBZ by just basically doing a lot of volunteer work. I, I basically volunteered. Uh, I could see that 1250 wasn't going to last and they were going to probably go off the air and I was going to be out of a job. So they had the Royals at the time and they didn't have anybody uh, producing their pre and post game show. So I went to the pr- program director at KMBZ and, and they were under the same umbrella uh, as 1250 the game. And I went to him and said, hey, I'll, I'll produce your pre and post game show for the Royals for free just because I was trying to bolster my resume in case I got let go. And I did that for the whole summer. And then they, they took 1250 off the air and the program director said, Hey, I want to keep you around because uh, you're obviously a hard worker and you're valuable. And so they kind of just created a position for me for a while. I started producing Seren Petro's nighttime show at KMBZ at that time. And around that same time, I got the KU women's basketball play-by-play job. Uh, So I was doing that on the side. Uh, I would also point out I did one year of play-by-play for the Kansas city attack, which was a, like the, between the comets, it was the attack and then the comments again. Um, I did that for one year. I did the KU women's games for 14 years. I did um, sideline reporting and pre and post game stuff for KU bas- uh, football for that time. And uh, then in 2004, 810 hired me to come over 
to because they got the Royals rights. My first job at 810 was to travel with the Royals and do do all their pre and post game coverage and all that stuff, which I did for four years. Uh, when they lost the Royals rights at 810, I thought, well, it's probably going to go back to Intercom and I might be able to go get my old job back at Intercom doing Royal stuff and everything. And at that same time, um, Stephen St. John was looking for a co-host for the morning show. Like I said, I'd never really considered myself a talk show guy. And honestly, I I really still don't. I love doing it. It's a lot of fun and I love the show, but um, I don't think I'm nearly as good at it as like say Stephen is. I mean, he's really, really good. I'm much better as a, as his sidekick in my opinion, but um, anyway, I I took the job because I wanted to have some leverage, you know, some, some options. And didn't know how much I was going to love it. And I've been doing it for, I think, like 15 years now, something like that. Then I started doing some pre and post game stuff for, for the Royals television broadcast at that point. Then I took the sporting job, you know, in 2015. And it's kind of been, that's the basis of everything. So, you know, you mentioned, you know, Stephen St. John gave you that opportunity to do the morning show at 810. You know, oftentimes, you know, sports radio hosts, talk show hosts, doesn't matter what part of the country will just take Kansas city, for instance, you know, these type of people try to tailor their show to the personality that they want to emulate, you know, what, what's the personality, you know, ever since you started at eight ten, what's kind of that personality that you try to personify on air. You want people to, to hear you and, you know, what type of vibes do you try to bring and create on your morning show? And, you know, have you been able to consistently, provide that throughout your 15, 16 years on air? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. My college professor said that it's always better to be a first rate version of yourself instead of a second rate version of somebody else. Um, I think all the great broadcasters and and like, it's, it's kind of appropriate that we're, we're uh, talking just a couple of days after John Madden passed away because John Madden was himself. You know, he didn't sound like anybody else. He sounded like John Madden and that's what made him so great. Obviously you have role models and people that you look up to, like I said, since I didn't really grow up looking at talk show guys as as uh, role models, I don't know that I had anybody that I really wanted desperately to sound like or anything like that. I've certainly had role models in my, I mean, I loved Bob Davis growing up, you know, I mean, I thought he was great. I've always loved Kevin Harlan and thought he was incredible. Bob Costas was a huge hero of mine. He was my biggest hero when I was a kid because he could do everything. You know, he could do play by play. He could host um, the, the Olympics, he could do desk work, he could do any, he could do radio talk shows. And he, he sounded like he knew what he was doing at all those things. So he was my, my biggest, my biggest hero, honestly, was probably Bob Costas. And, and Ryan Lefevre, once I got into the business was my biggest mentor in terms of somebody that took me under his wing and gave me advice and still does to this day. And, um, you know, struck up an incredibly good friendship with him. Um, give me an advice at, at every turn and sometimes advice I didn't want to hear, you know, things that making mistakes that I needed somebody to tell me, Hey man, you need to wake up and, and stop doing that. You know? So those are probably all guys that I would consider people I looked up to. And then when it comes to talk radio, one guy that I really admire a lot for his interviewing style is Howard Stern. I never was as into the edgy stuff being controversial and all that, but I love listening to his interviews. He's, he's an incredible interviewer. I love interviewing people, asking them questions, getting to know them, finding out what makes them tick and all that. Um, so I, I've tried to, I, I really, if, if I could interview anybody like someone else, it would be like Howard Stern. I don't think I'm nearly there, <laughs> but that's what I shoot for when we do interviews is, is to try to try to do it the way that Howard Stern does interviews. Yeah, that's great. And I'm glad that you were able to look up 
to those guys as, as really important role models. You know, you've been with Sporting Kansas City as a commentator since 2015. Would you say you've enjoyed that the most, more than you've been within the time that you were covering the Royals and covering Candace Athletics? Yeah, absolutely. I loved all those things. Like all of those jobs were, were, were wonderful for me. And, and as a guy, I mean, I'm a fourth generation Jayhawks. So I went to KU. I, I loved KU. I always thought of Allen Fieldhouse as hallowed ground. And, and so to get to broadcast games there, and I got to do a few men's games too, but women's games, whatever, just to, to be able to call Allen Fieldhouse my office for 14 years was, I pinched myself every time. I, I loved it. Um, and I was a huge Royals fan growing up. So getting to cover the Royals and travel with the Major League Baseball team and go to all these ballparks around the country was, was amazing. But I always wanted to be a play-by-play guy. And, and um, I always wanted to be an announcer for a team. And, and like I told you earlier, I, I didn't know it at the time because professional soccer, MLS didn't exist until I was a sophomore in college. So I didn't grow up thinking I'm going to be a soccer commentator in America because that wasn't really a, a thing. But as time went on and I realized, as I told you back in 2006, that this is my favorite sport. And, and I love the club. I mean, they just, I love the owners. I love the, the management, the way they've always treated me. And I, and I feel like it's, it's something I can call my own, so to speak. More than any other thing I've ever done, and I've loved every single job I've had, it's the one that feels like, man, this is where I'm supposed to be, if that makes any sense. Yeah. And I hope I get to do it as long as possible. I mean, I just, you know, I just, I'm hoping not to screw it up. Right. Out of all the three teams that you've been able to cover you know Kansas the Royals and Sporting KC what do you say is the proudest moment for each of them that you've had the joy of of witnessing Mm. I mean proudest moment is that's like something I'm proud of or just something like that I'm proud to be able to say that I that I was a part of you know those are kind of two different things probably I would say be a part of okay yeah so like the biggest moments maybe um all right, for KU, I would say on the football side, I mean, I, I, I have an Orange Bowl ring. I can show you guys. It's, it's in my little – I don't buy much sports memorabilia, but I've accumulated – can you guys see that from there? Yeah. Yeah, so there's an Orange Bowl ring and, a, and an Orange Bowl football that I got the team to autograph when we had our 10-year party like a couple years ago. Um, and then there's an inside bowl ring there too. So, you know, getting, getting to be a part of that – I mean, I, I used to joke with Bob Davis that that Orange Bowl ring was more precious than uh, – his basketball national championship rings because there's only KU's only won one orange bowl and that's probably never going to change. They've won a few national championships in basketball and hopefully more someday. But, but so that was it. I mean, that was incredible to be a part of that run. And I've had a lot of family members who actually played football at Kansas and only one that played basketball at Kansas. So football is pretty uh, big deal in our family. So that was, that was cool. When it comes to basketball, I got to do the play-by-play. I guess, I don't know if this is interesting to you guys or not, um, but doing show and tell, I got to call the play-by-play of a, of a Big 12 tournament game. And my boss gave me this right here. You can see I was calling the game with Chris Piper and he, and he made recordings on, on a CDs for me of the game. Uh, they played the Colorado Buffaloes. Bob Davis was attending a funeral. So I got to call a Big 12 tournament game for KU. That was pretty cool. Mm-hmm. For, for Royals, the funny thing there is like, you know, I, in that trophy case, I've got some scorecards. I got to cover the World Series in 2014 for MLB Network, which was really awesome. I mean, just incredible to be on the field working on national television for my hometown team. They were in the World Series for the first time since 1985. That was amazing. But, but actually, the, the coolest moment for me was 
in 2004, when I went to 810, we had just gotten the radio rights and my job was to be the sideline guy, you know, the clubhouse uh, reporter and travel with the team. And they had just come off a season where they, they had won 83 games and everybody thought that in 2004, they were going to take the next step and go to the playoffs. There's a lot of excitement and anticipation about it. And 810 had the rights for the first time. They had hooked me up with a wireless microphone so that I could do on-field interviews with players after the game. And that was the first time anybody at the Royals radio network had ever done that. And I don't know if you guys remember that game or if you're even old enough to, but the Royals won a walk-off. Mendy Lopez hit a home run to tie the game in the ninth inning against the White Sox. And then Carlos Beltran hit a home run to win the game in the ninth inning. And I had a really good relationship with Carlos Beltran and I went out on the field as he was getting mobbed at home plate. And as he was coming off, I, I did an interview with him and uh, Larry Moore, legendary broadcaster in Kansas city wrote like type wrote me a, a letter telling me that he thought it was one of the best interviews he'd ever heard and a way to capture this incredible moment. He called me Nick in the, uh, he, he said, Hey, dear Nick. <laughs> um, so it was kind of funny. And I still have that letter in a, in a shoe box in my office. Um, but that was that was probably my proudest moment um, as you know covering the Royals, just because of what it meant personally at the time and 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 for the radio station and all that. That's great. Uh, we, we fortunately we will not call you Nick Bucati on the podcast. <laughs> I've I've a pretty good list of people who famous people who've called me Nick. Larry Moore is one of the greatest broadcasters in Kansas City history. Bill Self called me Nick for the first month he was on the job <laughs> in Kansas. Scott Pioli called me Nick for about a month. Joe Lenardi called me Nick on the radio last year. Uh, and I'm trying to, oh, and then, uh, and uh, Mel Kuyper called me Nick Buckley one time when I was doing reports for him during a college football game. So when they, when they butcher your name, like, how does that make you feel? What do you say to them? Oh, I usually just let it go. I mean, I, I don't know. I, I don't take myself too seriously. You know, it's um, most people have an impossible time pronouncing my last name anyway. So it always kind of makes me laugh though. Cause I don't think Nick sounds that much like Nate. I could almost see if they called me Dave or something. Cause that sounds similar, but Nick, I don't know. I, they start with the same letter, but it always surprised me, but it happens a lot. So I just laugh about it. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, Nate, uh, as you mentioned in the show, you're the play-by-play for sporting Kansas city. I want to get your thoughts on the future plus direction of the club, specifically focusing on uh, Peter Vermees. Peter Vermees, as you know, is a great leader, has continual, continuously uh, developed great academy prospects. However, there's been questions about his ability to coach in crunch time. As an example, his uh, use of the substitution in Sporting KC's recent home playoff loss against Real Salt Lake. Do you uh, agree with, the, with that claim? Look, everybody's entitled to their opinions on that stuff, and I'm not here to tell anybody they're right or wrong about any of that. And there's no way to prove what would have happened had he used more subs through the course of the year or not. But I will tell you this. Peter Vermees is the greatest coach I've ever been around in my life, in my opinion. And I've been around Bill Self. I've been around Andy Reid. I've been around Ned Yost, Dick Vermeil, championship coaches. And none of them are better than Peter Vermees, in my opinion. None of them are perfect, by the way. They're all human beings. They all have flaws. Uh, They all have biases, all that stuff. But for my money, when you look at what Sporting Kansas City is as a club, he's built the whole thing. Um, He keeps it competitive every single year. You know, we look at the Kansas City Chiefs winning six division titles and how impossible that is in in a league like the NFL where there's so much parity and there's a salary cap. There's even more parity in in the world of, of Major League Soccer than there is in the NFL. 
Uh, and there's not one position in Major League Soccer where if you just have that right, you're going to be good for 15 years straight, like the, the quarterback position in football. So you're not going to find a bigger fan or apologist of Peter Vermees than me. I believe in the man. I do. And I've seen it year in and year out with different types of teams and all the things he's been able to do. And look, it's really disappointing what happened this year for them to lay an egg in, in a game the way that they did against Real Salt Lake. I don't think anybody would argue with that. But I, I, I've seen the guy win four trophies in my time here. So I find it hard to believe that there's something about him that can't get it done in crunch time when you've won four championships in a short period of time. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, for me, he's just been so great. He's one of the best coaches. And we're kind of spoiled here in KC with uh, Peter Vermees, Andy Reid, and Bill Self all in like on the same area. And we get to watch those guys coach and lead every single year. And I was actually at that real Salt Lake game, and it was uh, it was pretty uh, painful to see uh, them lose the way that they did. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the thing that was so tough about it is when you're a sports fan for long enough, you start to realize that so many things have to line up for your team to win the title. You, you have to stay healthy. You, you, sometimes you have to have the right matchups in the postseason. You have to be peaking at the right time. You might have to catch a lucky break here or there, even when you are good enough. I mean, I think we can say that about when the Royals won the World Series, when the Chiefs won the Super Bowl, when Sporting won MLS Cup, when KU won the National Championship, all those things, so much has to line up. And it really looked this year like that was all lining up for Sporting. I mean, the, the bracket was falling the way they needed it to. Home field advantage uh, was happening the way they needed it to. It seemed like they were getting everybody healthy at the right time. And so, you know, and I know from talking to the guys, talking to the players and talking to Peter afterwards, they, they all know that they know this, this was a great opportunity and, and it got wasted and that hurts, you know, that that's really hard to swallow. So that, that was to me, the most painful loss that sporting has had since I've started broadcasting the games. Yeah, absolutely. Speaking of uh, championships, let's talk about uh, this year's Kansas Jayhawk basketball team. Um, so far, what are your takeaways so far on this year's team? And in your opinion, what needs what needs to line up for KU to win that national championship and get back to the final four this year? A lot of it's going to be the stuff that I just mentioned, right? Like you, you have to have the right matchups in the postseason. You can't have a bad day. Sometimes it's just literally as, as simple as you, you can't have a bad day when you get into a single elimination tournament. But when it comes to the strengths of the team, I, I love – the fact that you have a couple of guys in Christian Brown and Ochai Abaji who have made as much progress as they have as players. It's clear that they really dedicated themselves in the offseason to improving upon parts of their game that were weaknesses. And a lot of that is creating their own shot. You know, Christian Brown shooting like 60% from the floor as a perimeter player, that's, that's ridiculous. And Ochai Abaji to me was always a catch and shoot guy before this year. And that was frustrating because his body type, his, his, his bounciness, his athleticism said that, that he should have the capability of being much more than a guy that can just catch and shoot. And he's, he's turned himself into that this year. And I think if you've got two guys like that, that can create their own shot um, and have the, the length and athleticism that they both have on the defensive end of the floor, you've got a chance to be really special. They've got a big guy inside and McCormick who's, who's now progressed over time. The biggest question I have is the point guard spot. You know, I think that uh, Remy Martin and Dewan Harris are good, solid players. I think they have certain areas of their game they have to get better at if this team is going to usually I think you just you got to have a good a good point guard if you want to win the national championship and so I think they need to make some progress and I think that's going to be a big part of the season is watching the development of those two guys as the season goes on. 
Yeah, absolutely. I agree. I definitely think Ochai and CB, you can argue as the two best wings, probably the best wing duel in college basketball. And I, I, I do trust McCormick a little bit, probably a lot more than most KU fans, because watching him finish the season last year strong, I feel like that's where it's trending right now. And Dewan Harris, last few games, he's really starting to like excel a little bit. He's gotten a lot better. Remy Martin, it's a really definitely been interesting up and down a little bit with him. He first game of the year, he drops 15, and then he has a couple scoreless games. But I think he's going to get it going later in the season. Obviously, I watched him play a lot when he was at ASU, and we saw him beat us twice when KU faced Arizona State. So we know he's capable. I just think right now with Remy, I think he's going to be that consistent guy late in the year, but I think he's still trying to figure out what Bill Self wants, kind of similar to what Malik Newman had to go through when his one year at uh, Kansas. Yeah, I think that's right. And I, I think that, in my opinion, the thing that he's struggling with the most right now is – figuring out what a good shot is in this, in this system, in this program, because all of a sudden we're talking about it. You got to get the ball in the hands of Christian Brown. You've got to get the ball in the hands of Ochai. You need to throw it down low to Dave McCormick and, and force defenses to, to account for his presence inside and create rotations. I don't think that that's very familiar uh, to Remy Martin. I think he's used to being, if not the number one option on his team, one of the number one, uh, one of the top options, he can score the basketball. I think he's trying to figure out when is it time for me to score the basketball and when is it time for me to facilitate? And that can be a really difficult thing when it's something that's, that's just out of the scope of what you've done for your entire career. And I think he's working at it. I think it's just a very hard balance to strike. I think he'll continue to get better at it as the season goes on. Yeah, absolutely. I, I definitely looking forward to seeing how this team uh, progress. Let's uh, I want to ask you about KU football as well. Your former team that you covered, uh, Lance Leipold comes in after Les Miles firing, comes in a little bit like after the spring, which makes it a really difficult to transition into year one. Uh, they finished two and 10 this year. They had an ugly win against South Dakota and then uh, pulled off an overtime victory at Texas to end their, uh, their conference road losing streak, which was their first uh, road win since 2008, which is kind of hard to believe. Uh, what grade would you give Lance Leipold for his first year? I give him an A. I'm a, I'm a fan. I, I think they've got the right coach for the first time since Mark Mangino. And I don't know how good that means they will be, but I feel very confident that he's going to have the team competitive for the first time in a long time, which is, I think, what most Kansas fans want. Yeah, would we all love to see the team go 12-1 and one and back to a big bowl game like the Orange Bowl? Sure. But I think more than anything, it's going into Saturdays feeling like your team has a chance to win against West Virginia and Iowa State. And, and, and Kansas State and Oklahoma State and teams like that. Um, and, and, and you'll get into 500, get into a bowl game. And I, I believe firmly he's, he's got the team headed in that direction. They have a guy, in my opinion, you, you have to have a worker in that job at Kansas. Kansas has tried the, the flashy names like Charlie Weiss and Les Miles that can – flash their national championship rings or Super Bowl rings at the recruits and say, hey, come play for me. That's not how it works at Kansas. You're not getting the four and five-star kids at Kansas um, unless you find them as hidden gems. Mark Mangino built that Orange Bowl team off two and three-star recruits. Chris Harris Jr. was a two-star recruit. Akib Talib was somebody no one had heard of who redshirted a year 
at Kansas. Daryl Stuckey was a three-star athlete out of Washington High School that 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 wasn't getting many looks. You have to outwork people at Kansas. Everybody I've talked to that's been around Leipold tells me that he's ridiculously organized and buttoned up and hardworking and focused. And that's the way his entire staff is. And I think you can already see it. And I think you can see it by the way the team played this year. Fewer mistakes on the field. They, they found themselves in games on a more consistent basis. And, and, the, and the biggest thing is, even when they were getting their butts kicked, they were playing hard. And did you always see that over the last 10 years? No way. And I think if you instill those things, that tells me he's already turned the culture around there. And that's, that's the hardest thing to do at a place that loses year after year after year. So yeah, I'm a, I'm a big Lance Leipold fan and I'm a believer in where he's got the thing headed. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Those, the last three games, like it, it's getting me already excited for next season and listening to an interview with Jalen Daniels, just seeing how he carries himself, like him talking about light, some of the things Leipold's like advice he's given him. It gets me excited. It, it, it things feel so much different now with cave football than you did in the past. You kind of had the optimism always just seemed to fall apart real quick, but the optimism now it feels like it's just staying there and it's uh, well deserved. And uh, for uh, the 2022 season, what is a realistic expectation that cave fans should have on next year's football team? Well, that's a good question. I don't have the schedule in front of me. Um, I think some of it is going to be dependent on the, the transfer portal, right? It's going to be interesting to see how long it takes coaches to turn programs around with this new advent of the transfer portal and how many different guys you can get in. And I know Lance Leipold, I've talked to him about it. And he said, look, I, yeah, you got to build with high school kids, but this is a new era of college football where even the big schools are taking a large number of recruit of, of transfers. If you remember the Mark Mangino era at all, they made it to a bowl game in his second year because of Bill Whittemore. You know, they found a quarterback that could just make enough plays to get him to 500. And they had one playmaker in Charles Gordon and they got him the ball every way they possibly could. And they got to 500. I don't know if their schedule plays out for that this year. I'm not expecting that. I just want to see them win four or five games, be competitive in, in, in several others. And that to me would be a big sign of progress uh, but I wouldn't even rule out the ability to make it to a bowl game. I and mean, we'll have to wait and see how things go. Yeah, I'm I'm on the same page with you. I think I think if they double their wins, so go from two to four will be would be a really good another really good step. But you definitely I wouldn't be surprised if they exceed that four win expectation next year. It, de- it just depends on if they can put it all together and continue to do so. I think most KU fans are now excited to go back to the booth now and Go watch it. Go watch a team that you know that that is capable of like maybe surprising some people in the college football landscape. Yeah, just and and not make you want to leave at halftime. Yeah, I mean honestly, that's it's that's kind of where I'm at. I just I just want to you know and 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 the early Mangino years they had teams you could be proud of even if they only won four games, five games, six games, you, you could be proud of them because you knew they were going to go out and they were they they the other team was going to know they were they they were in a fight. Yeah, absolutely. Speaking of sporting events, uh, two years ago, yeah, an interesting moment in the uh, Sunflower Showdown. After a Wildcats turnover, you held a paper box score in front of Xavier Sneed's face. I want to know what was the reaction to that moment and uh, from your colleagues and uh, fans on social media, especially from the people from Manhattan? Yeah, honestly, that's, that's, a, that's a painful memory for me. That was, that was the worst moment of my professional career. 
I don't love talking about it because because it brings back a lot of horrible memories. But I did it, so I have to own it, you know, and I have to be you know be willing to to talk about it. It was a it was a crazy set of circumstances. The first thing first is if I could do it over again, I obviously I wouldn't have done it. It was a, a horrible miscalculation on my part, you know. Um, I can give you the background on the story because I had done the KU women's games for 14 years. I knew all of the people that worked uh, the facilities there, and I had become friends with a lot of them because you see them every single time you work there. And one of the things they do every media timeout for the people that work at Press Row is they print off an updated box score and they 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 hand one to each member of the media there at Press Row. And I was sitting in the in the the, the fan section there for that game. Not I wasn't working, and I was all excited because I was used to sit whenever I had those seats, it was because I was working and you're not allowed to cheer or, or, you know, do anything. You're supposed to sit there and be professional when you're working. And so I was like, Oh, this is cool. I can sit at the court and I can be a fan and yell at the refs and, 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 and have some fun. And um, the guy that, that had handed those stat sheets out for probably the 14 years I did the women's games saw that I was sitting right next to the media members. And so just to be friendly to me, he dropped a stat sheet in front of me each time there was a media timeout. And so I was looking at the box scores. And at that point in the game, it was late in the game and uh, Sneed came flying out of bounds and landed on top of me and, and a buddy of mine was sitting there and we helped him up and we clapped for him and they had good hustle. And he had one of those stat sheets got stuck to his hand because his hand was sweaty and those stat sheets were kind of just piled up in front of me. And uh, I was the only person sitting in those areas that had all these pieces of paper sitting there. And so he went to kind of hand it back to me and I took it off of his hand and, you know, thinking I was funny, trying to be a funny guy, make people laugh, whatever. I, I was like, Hey man, you need to look at this. You know, you, you guys are getting out rebound, you know? And I thought it was kind of like a playful trash talk thing at the time. And it was a horrible job of reading the room, you know, because it was on camera and everybody saw this a-hole taunting a player and waving, you know, waving a stat sheet at him. And I, it didn't take long to figure out how, how it came across to everybody uh, because my phone started blowing up immediately. And some of my buddies who were K-State fans were like, dude, what was that? You know, you, you know, you jerk. And it, man, it was, it was tough. And, and then, I mean, yeah, like coworkers, I mean, were like, dude, what were you thinking? You know? And uh, yeah, I mean, my, my social media was flooded with people telling me what a terrible person I was. And I, I, I don't know how many hundreds of emails I got from people really letting me know what they thought of me at the time. And I, answer, I tried to answer every one of them and, and, and I tried to apologize for it. And a lot of people didn't think my apology was adequate for it. And, and all I can say is I, 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 was a, I was a privileged person sitting in that seat, you know, to, to get to sit there. I could never afford those seats. I, those, those seats were given to me. I'm a privileged person because I get to work in sports broadcasting and get paid to do it. And, and you know, with privilege comes responsibility. You shouldn't act like that, you know, and, and the way that it came across was, you know, I, I was taunting. Uh, a student athlete who's out there trying his best for his school. And, and I didn't see it that way when I was doing it. I thought it was a playful, you know, back and forth uh, type of trash talk that you do with your buddies, but he's a student athlete. He's not my buddy. I'm a, I'm a grown man. He's a kid, you know, um, all these things kind of come across and those things were all pointed out to me. And, and I understand it. I do. I understand why people were so angry with me for it. And um, you know, all I can do is, is really like try to learn from it not repeat those kind of mistakes, you know, when, when life puts me in a weird situation like that again, 
and uh, and try to be better. You know, I mean, it just honestly for all the create all the stupid things I've done in my life, that was definitely the one that caused me more grief than anything that I've ever any other stupid thing I've ever done. And it was a stupid thing. Like I will understand. I'm not trying to play a victim here or anything like that. I mean, it was my fault. I did it. You know. And I, and I have to own it. And unfortunately, like, and I know it's going to be one of those things, like people are going to remember it, you know, it still gets brought up to me to this day. So I, I, I expect I'll probably have to talk about it at some point in time, maybe for the rest of my life. Yeah, def- yeah, definitely. Uh, you know, the KUK state fans, man, it, we, we all get in those shouting matches and stuff. And I know K state fans are not perfect either. They've, they've done some things <laughs> against KU that, that, uh, that is probably worse than what you did, if I'm being uh, yeah. really honest. <laughs> but you know what? That doesn't make it right, what I did. You know what I mean? Like, you, you know, you, you, can, you can sit there and point at other people and say, well, you did this, but it doesn't, it, it doesn't make it right what I did. And what I would say is, that, you know, like, hey, passion is what makes sports so fun. People get wound up. They get excited. They care a lot about their teams. They take pride in their teams. And, um, and, and I, I appreciate people having their passion for their school and standing up for their school and all that stuff. And I will say this, like the thing that hurts me the most about it, honestly, is I don't want to be that guy. You know, there are some guys in my positions that, that, that might've been like, Hey, this is great. Let's get everybody wound up. You know, I don't mind being the bad guy, uh, you know, playing the heel a little bit. You certainly got a lot of attention from it. That's just not, that's not who I want to be. I like to be friends with people. I don't want people to hate me. Um, I don't want K-State fans to hate me. I got so many buddies that are K-State fans, you know, and, and I love, honestly, the, the, here's, here's an ironic part of that whole story. One of my best friends uh, lives in Manhattan and, and works very closely with K-State athletic department. And if you guys remember that season, you know, K-State won the big 12 that year. Mm-hmm. And earlier that year, K-State beat Kansas in Manhattan. And they mm-hmm. got a breakaway dunk at the end of the game to kind of to solidify the thing. I was at that game in Manhattan with a bunch of K-State fans and they were ribbing me and giving me a hard time. And I was giving them a hard time back. And we went out in Aggieville afterwards and had a few beers and I had a good time. And that's how I view the rivalry. You know, like it's, 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 it's a fun thing. It's you got, but what makes it fun is you got buddies on the other side and you know that if your team wins, you get to talk some trash on them. And if their team wins, they're going to talk some trash on you, you know, and, um, and that's what I want it to be. I didn't ever want to be one of these people that it's like, man, look at that, that guy. And here's one thing that hurt a lot was I got a lot of that guy represents everything we hate about KU fans. <laughs> <laughs> you know, this arrogant jerk that's, you know, thinks he can get away with anything. And, and I don't want to be that guy. I, I don't. So, you know, that, that, that did hurt because I, I do think I'm much more the, the fun loving, Hey, let's all I'll go to Manhattan and go to a game and have some fun with everybody. And, uh, you know, and it's a sporting event and have a good time. And I obviously I, I miscalculated pretty big time on that one. Yeah, I, I feel the same way. I do have a lot of friends that are K-State alum. I've been to Manhattan multiple times. Always had a good time with the people in Manhattan, I will say. Um, lastly, uh, I want to move to the uh, Kansas City Royals. Uh, what were your thoughts on the past season, uh, the state of the farm system, and what year do you anticipate them reaching the postseason again? Oh, boy. You know, I think we started to see some glimpses last year of, of some of the pitching and some of the young players that uh, that, that can produce in, in the years to come for this team. I'm really excited about the farm system right now. Very excited about it. Obviously, Bobby Witt Jr. being at the top of that list, I think he's, he's going to be a stud. I kind of see next year being like, 
don't know if you guys remember that year. It would have been 2013, I think, when they were using the phrase, this is our time. And it, it became really controversial because they got off to a horrible start and they weren't winning games. And, uh, and it was like, wait, I thought it was your time. But what it turned out was that Hosmer and Perez and Mustakas and all those guys, they needed some time in the big leagues to get their feet under them and, and learn how to be winners at the big league level. And so it wasn't until 2014 when, you know, they, they really started to put things together. And I, I kind of feel like maybe next year is going to be that year where we don't want to get ahead of ourselves and put the expectations too high. Uh, I think we'll see a lot of those guys like Bobby Witt Jr. come up and play next year. But I, I wouldn't be surprised if it's more like 2023 when they're really ready to actually go out and compete to try to win a division. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, we had Steve Busy off on, on a month ago, and he's shown a lot of optimism about this uh, Kansas City Royals team. And I feel the same way. Also watching Salvi last year, having the year that he had, it definitely makes me excited to see our farm system come up and seeing him get surrounded with some young talent that could – bring that magic like they did in 14 and 15, maybe give Salvador Perez one last, one last run at going for a world series. Yeah. It's going to be interesting to see how long Salvi can keep it up. Cause he just keeps getting better somehow at this age. Yeah. It's amazing. I'm hoping at least five good more years, at least from Salvi, yeah. I think is a uh, realistic expectation in my opinion. Before we let you go, uh, thank you very much, uh, Nate, for coming on and spending your time. Um, where can people find you on social media and how and uh, what are other ways we can uh, support you? You know, you, you can go on Twitter. Um, I'm uh, I'm one of those. I have I have the underscore in my name for some reason. I just set it up that way 100 years ago. So it's Nate underscore Bucati. And I guess I'm on Instagram and Nate Bucati as well. And Obviously, go to 810whb.com and you can uh, listen to listen to the Border Patrol whenever you want or get the app, download the app, the 810whb app, and listen to the podcasts and listen to the show. Awesome. Nate, we really appreciate you coming on and, and telling us many interesting stories about, obviously, your, your time growing up in Kansas City, growing up, you know, a big sports fan and, you know, your journey into what you do now. We appreciate the time. Hey, thanks a lot, guys. I really appreciate it. It was, it was fun chatting with you guys. For those who are listening to our show for the first time, all our past and future episodes are available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Also, make sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at the Sports Mecca.